This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by the Nudge Podcast, hosted by Phil Agnew and brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. You can learn the science behind great marketing with bite-sized 20-minute episodes packed with practical advice from admired marketers and behavioral scientists. Nudge is a fast-paced but still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. A recent issue talked about the, the idea of getting your customers, your prospects in the habit of buying from you or listening to you or following you, habit-based marketing. Download Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jance. My guest today is Mike Evans. He's the founder of Grubhub and he founded it in his spare bedroom and grew it to a multi-billion dollar online food delivery colossus. That is a household name, probably became even more so the last couple of years. Since leaving Grubhub, he founded Fixer.com, an on-demand handy person service focused on social impact. He lives in Chicago with his wife, daughter, dog, and I bet you it's more than one bike if I had to yeah, guess. That's true. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, Mike, Mike, welcome to the show. You can never have enough bikes. That's not true. You can have enough. I just haven't hit that theoretical. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I should have wanted to mention also that we're going to talk about his new book, Hangry, A Startup Journey. So, for people who don't certainly know, I mean, again, Grubhub house, household name. People don't know your story, though. Maybe just give us kind of the high-level startup to you know IPO to now what you're doing. Yeah, so it started because I wanted a pizza. And I could kind of just stop there. I literally just wanted a pizza. And I was a software developer, and so I wrote a version one of, of a neighborhood delivery guide. It showed me all the restaurants delivered to me. That hobby turned into a business, that business grew. You know, I obviously spent a lot of time and energy on it, about about 13 years, yeah. and grew it all the way through the IPO, after which I I literally quit and literally rode off into the sunset. I rode my <laughs> bicycle from Virginia to Oregon. And so, yeah, that's that, that's the story that's detailed in the book. It's sort of yeah. a personal journey, a lot more than the business, you know, it, there's some business elements to it, but it's really about the personal experience of starting yeah, something from nothing. It's really more of a memoir than I suppose a business guide. Yeah, it is. It is definitely. A, it's a business memoir, in fact. Yeah, so it's sort go. of a mashup of those two things. It's <laughs> like travel writing thrown in too. Totally. All right. So let's go back to the. Well, I you, I was going to go back to the early days, but now you made me go back even farther. When you did this, was it just kind of a lark, like because I can, I'm going to create this thing? No, I literally was hungry, and the Yellow Pages was a disaster. Certainly, <laughs> and I talk about this a little bit in the book that it's true for most entrepreneurs that there's a push and a pull to starting a business. And the push is like pushing you out of being able to work for other people. It's very hard for people who right. have, the, have that mindset. It's I'm kind of unemployable. I can't handle right. having a boss. And so I was like, well, I better be my own boss then. So there was a push. And then there was this thing that was a hobby that I was like increasingly aware had legs and I, and it could run. And so I decided to sort of cast caution to the wind, quit my job and go for it with starting this food delivery thing. So, so I'm envisioning because you, you 
actually both of your businesses really are, you're creating the supply and the demand in a lot of cases, right? You have to balance that because without restaurants, you're kind of not going to have customers. Without customers, you're not going to have restaurants, right? So did you, I'm envisioning you like going down the street in Chicago somewhere, knocking on restaurant doors and saying, I have an idea. You want to like be part of this? I did do that. I literally did that. But you know what you're talking about a little bit right now. So when you have these kind of businesses that have these two different sides of a network, they're called marketplaces and, and they suffer, they all suffer from this problem called, you know, the, you know, called the chicken and the egg problem. Like if without any restaurants, it's not valuable to diners, diners, it's not valuable to restaurants. My answer to this problem is to cheat. You have to figure out a way to cheat, to get an unfair advantage. And for me, what that was, I actually went and picked up the paper menus for restaurants and scanned them. And so when a customer came to the website, to the, when a diner came to the website, they would see all of the restaurant, all of the menus uh. for the city. And then the ones at the top of the list were the ones that they could order online from. Uh, so I literally had to walk the entire city of Chicago and the entire city of San Francisco and pick up every single menu. And so that was my way to cheat is that as I sort of bypassed the chicken and the egg problem by creating value for one of the sides yeah, before yeah, I yeah. sold anyone. Yeah. So a lot of the restaurants were already seeing something in it for them before you really even got them to sign up, I guess. Yeah, I, it was true that when I started selling online ordering as like a packet, the restaurants knew who I knew who the website was already. A lot of them, I had never talked to them. I had just put the menus yeah. online and they loved that we sent them traffic, but then it, that made it certainly a softer like opening when I walked in the door. It was certainly, it wasn't super hard, although restaurants get sold a lot of stuff. And so yeah. I got kicked out of a lot of restaurants early on. Yeah, and it's a lot of people walking in the door at lunchtime trying to sell them stuff, right? Yeah, you don't, uh, you, to sell restaurants, you don't walk in at noon, you walk in at 2 p.m. after the lunch yeah, rush so. is over. And actually, and I literally have an anecdote about this in the book. I actually read like as a tip, like as a joke, you can walk in through the alleyway instead of the front door. And so I started uh, doing that. I started actually walking down funny. the alleyway behind the restaurants and walking in the back door, which got me, I won't say violently kicked out, but it was certainly a little bit more emphatically ejected out of a few restaurants. But that's just part of the rejection of doing sales. Yeah, yeah. So was there a moment, and probably this is in hindsight, where you thought this is actually gonna work? Yeah, when so it was started as a delivery guide and we tracked the orders that came into the restaurant through a phone system, which was great at the time. It, that phone system ended up being like sort of a, a people really hated it later in the businesses in the business life cycle, like politicians and attorney generals, everybody hated that phone system. But the restaurants liked it at first because it tracked how effective their advertising was. And I was kind of onto something. I had quit my job. I was making about half as much money as I did as a software developer, which wasn't great, but it was like, okay, this is all right. But when I switched from that to online ordering, the revenue in the business tripled with the same customer base. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I realized just how much friction there was in the ordering process. Like people say, why don't you just call on the phone? And actually it turns out there's a lot of reasons you don't want to call on the phone yeah. or an inaccurate, busy restaurant, right? Like phone calls are inaccurate. There's a lot of reasons. And so when that revenue tripled and suddenly I was like, oh, I can hire people to help me. Like, this thing is going to work. That was a big moment. That was, there were several, but that was probably the biggest one. So at what point did you say, we've got to go get money? So I ran the business for four years without taking investment, where it was just whatever we could grow based on the revenue we were generating. Now that's, it's a little bit misleading in the sense that the investment, I, I could write the software myself because I got a software engineering degree from MIT. So in some sense, 
that was the investment, right? Learning how to yeah, code yeah. myself was the investment. But in terms of actually taking outside like cash from a venture capitalist, it was uh, it was four years in. It was in 2006. So I started in 2002, and in 2006 we took financing in. So I know that you talk about acquisitions in the uh, in the book, but were did you buy up competition or was there competition anywhere? What type of acquisitions did you feel like you had to make? There, it was a it was the kind of a business where there was always competition. I mean, I think there were probably a hundred other companies that were trying to do what we were doing at one point simultaneously. There's probably two or 300 that came and went over the course of that, you know, 13 years. And, you know, there were little ones, like there was a company called Order Up and there was another company called Quick Order and Quick Order did the online ordering for Domino's Pizza. And so they already had a pretty robust technology. Mm -hmm. And then all the way up through Living Social and Groupon started competing with us. And then ultimately Uber launched their own delivery thing, yeah, Uber yeah, Eats. Yeah. And so there was always competition. And so the thing that really we focused on when all of these sort of competitors came up was how do we just make the best possible product for the customer? And that way we don't have to outcompete them by spending. We, you know, it's not just marketing dollars spent unintelligently. It was about repeat purchase rates and referrals and retention of the customers that we had spent so much money to acquire. And then, and so that was a big part of the secret of success and why we outgrew everyone and were the first one to IPO. And now let's hear from a sponsor. You know, today everybody's online, but are they finding your website? Grab the online spotlight and your customers' attention with SEMrush. From content and SEO to ads and social media, SEMrush is your one-stop shop for online marketing. Build, manage, and measure campaigns across all channels faster and easier. Are you ready to take your business to the next level? Get seen? Get SEMrush. Visit SEMrush, that's S-E-M-Rush.com slash go to try it free for seven days. You do talk in the book about the amount of hours. I'm, you know, I'm thinking the walking all of Chicago, walking all of San Francisco. So, you know, you put in a lot of hours. What, like a minute, like, like a lot of entrepreneurs, startups, some of who don't achieve anywhere near the, the level of success you did. What toll did that take on your personal life? Yeah, it was certainly it was challenging. I didn't have kids at the time. So certainly I didn't have that like competing for my time. But in terms of my marriage and my friendships and things like that, yeah, it took a really bad toll. It's very hard to it's hard to spend that much time on a business um, and then develop healthy relationships. I prioritized yeah. my marriage. And so that that did fine. But I ended up hiring a lot of my friends. And so I ended up not having really a lot of relationships outside of work, which I think is actually a pretty typical story for most people who start businesses that, that sort of take off. You want to share in the upside, share the wealth, right? Yeah. And so you want to include your friends. But what that ends up doing is it, it, it ends up for very rich work relationships, but actually a sort of a paucity of personal right, relationships. Right, right, right. Yeah. Plus, I'm sure you had many times when even when you weren't working, you couldn't stop working because you're always thinking of what's next, right? <laughs> yeah. I, there's different types of you can't stop working. There's the website went down and no one can right. order or the, my, the worst one, I was on a camping trip. And this story is actually not in the book. This anecdote didn't make the cut, but I was on a camping trip. And after we played, after an order, the orders in the early days got faxed to the restaurant. So mm -hmm. we had a fax. And then our phone confirmation system would call and say, you know, type in the four digit number on the bottom of the page to confirm that you got the fax went all the way through. That system got like bugged out one day and it just started like spam calling the restaurants like 10 times a minute. So, oh, man. and so <laughs> for like 36 hours, cause oh. I was on a camping trip. And so talk <laughs> about like not being able to take him up. I came back and like 
half of my restaurants were like, we're done. We can't, we can't. I'm like, well, I went, I left for one day. Like what happened? <laughs> and so it does, that kind of stuff does happen. And so there's the, I can't stop thinking about it because I'm thinking about the next thing. And then there's the, I can't stop working on it. Cause literally when I go away, everything falls apart. So, uh, are you a fan or have you watched the show, the bear? The bear? No, I haven't seen the bear. Oh, okay. Well, it's filmed in Chicago. It's about a restaurant. And one of the episodes they, they turn on online ordering. They were like an old school restaurant that somebody talked to me. They turned on online ordering and like the thing just exploded and all these orders were coming out of it. They didn't know what to do or how to handle it. So I'm envisioning that a little bit. I mean, that was an experience when, you know, when we ran super, we, you know, we started with, it was in my apartment. It got to the point where we ran a Super Bowl ad and oh, the wow. amount, just the amount of traffic that your web servers <laughs> It, like yeah. get hit with. I mean, it was millions of people are going to our website. It was very effective from a branding and awareness perspective, but like conversion did not work. Like the site crashed. Like, yeah, it was, it didn't quite crash. It just bogged down, but people also weren't ordering. By the time the Super Bowl started, you're not ordering pizza. So it didn't result yeah. in a lot of orders right away. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was a whole experience to sort of see that, those kind of volumes. So you mentioned this, so I'll just ask you to tell us a story that, that, you know, right up to IPO, at which point you quit, which I think some people would actually say, well, you made it now, why are you quitting? Yeah. So what's, what's the story behind that? Or is there, you know, I know there is a story behind it, but how would you, how do you position that story now? Yeah, I think one of the things that surprised me the most about when people talk about that moment, when I decided to quit, they usually ask me the question, well, why did you quit? And I respond with, look, you should have a reason to stay at things, not a reason yeah. to quit, right? You should, right. Th there should be a reason that you're, act it, there should be a clear connection between my activity that I spend every day and my goals for my life. And if I can't draw a line between those two things, I need to either change my goals or change my activity. And that's just where I ended up after the IPO. Like there was nothing else I wanted to accomplish with that business. I wasn't in it for the vanity or for the um, you know, sort of the bells and whistles of running a public company that that wasn't super appealing to me. And so I finally had this opportunity to like go do a long bike ride. Like I, I, I had thought about doing, you know, hiking the Appalachian Trail or doing some sort of big mm -hmm. adventure thing. And what I ended up doing is riding my bicycle across the United States. It was great. It was a great decision, especially coming after the investment banks and the IPO and the wealth and the private jets that are all involved in that process to I'm having a peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly sandwich at a campsite in rural Tennessee. Like it was, it was quite the contrast. And I, I think yeah. it, it was healthy for me. Well, and I think, again, this is with me not knowing, I mean, in the 20 minutes you and I have been together, I, I'm guessing that the culture of that company would have been hard to keep. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, culture is never static anyway. The any At any company, it's dynamic. And yeah. if you're not controlling or influencing where it's going dynamically, then it's going somewhere you don't want it to go, right? And it's true that, you know, at that time we had close to 4,000 employees, which is a big difference from the one. You were out of friends at that point, right? Yeah. <laughs> to hire. And, and so it's it absolutely, and we had merged with another company. And so yeah. it, it had developed a lot and there were a lot more sort of cooks in the kitchen in terms of where that culture was going. And then layer on top of that, you know, the public investors add a lot of pressure to a company uh, right. to make quarterly earnings numbers. And those sort of come before anything, before customer service and before product. And, and so those kind of things, like it, it's just this sort of pressure over time that changes the company. And I don't think for the better, I don't, I think it's really hard for public companies to keep that level of sort of their cultural touchstones. It's, I think that's really hard. 
Yeah, yeah, it's sort of a different set of masters at that point. This is just a curiosity question. Are you an investor still? Uh, I have or... invested disastrously in a number of startups. Well, no, uh, I actually meant in Grubhub, oh, a little uh, shareholder. No, I I sold the last of my shares about a year after I left, so gotcha. I haven't I have not had a horse in that race as the gotcha. as DoorDash, gotcha. Uber Eats, and Grubhub have sort of gone head to head. I've been like just eating popcorn from the side like everyone else. Like, okay, well, <laughs> I mean, I do still order on the Grubhub app. Obviously, yeah. I'm not going to like switch apps, but right. yeah, I don't own any of the company anymore. So let's talk about the bike across America. How many days? It took 79 days, which is typical. It takes most people between 80 and 90 who do it. There's a few hundred that do it every day, every year. And you, you told people obviously of your plan. So what kind of, did you meet people along the road that knew who you were, knew what you were doing, or was it just like you'd bump into somebody and you'd strike up a conversation? Yeah, there's, there's a website with a really weird name. It's called crazyguyonabike.com. And it's like, it's like a website to meet up with other people who are into these long distance touring idea. Okay. So I had met like maybe online, I probably met like 15 people who were planning to do the trip of that 15, only three or four of us actually started. So there was a lot of people who wanted to do it. But when you get down to like actually on the bike pedaling, there's a lot of barriers between I intend to and I'm actually there. So I knew maybe, I think three or four people before I started. And then I met like six or seven. And what ends up happening is you end up leapfrogging the same group of people. Like they get in front of you a little bit, then you get in front of them. Uh, and so yeah. you really, whoever you meet by day seven are kind of the people that you're going to meet most of the most that are going to be with you sort of as you go across the coast. Yeah. And so I started solo, but by the time I got to Kansas, I was riding with two other guys 24 seven. We became close friends. Yeah, I actually have heard people describe what you just described for people that go like out on the AT or the Pacific Coast that you end up bumping into the same people. I live in Colorado. Mike, I can't imagine riding over Hoosier Pass. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny because after riding over Hoosier Pass, I bought a house in Silverthorne because I loved it so much. So Hoosier Pass was easy, which is weird. Yeah. The reason it was easy because is because I rode 2,500 miles before I got to Pueblo. Right. And so yeah. the Appalachians were really hard. They were steep. I wasn't ready for them. I wasn't physically conditioned, but I got over them. I took some rest days and then I rode across Kansas. And then uh, the sort of the last city you're in the plains, you sort of get through the east, southeastern Colorado desert and you get to Pueblo. And then yeah. from there, it's just three days straight up, yeah. like 9,000 yeah. foot climb. And it's stunning. And then after you pass Hoosier Pass, it's like a 50 mile per hour downhill into Breckenridge. And it's just yeah. amazing. It's so much fun. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was, it, the mountains were tough, but by that point I was much stronger. It was really rewarding. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. No, it is gorgeous. I am I'm about, I don't know how many miles, 50 miles maybe-ish west of Silverthorne. Yeah, that you're in Golden, right? Is that right? I, I, yeah. That's my town address, but I'm up in rural area, but at about 9,000 feet. So let's talk. Oh, I did have one question. Where was the best beer? Oh, you know, it was <laughs> funny. There was a... I know exactly the answer to that question. There was a brew pub that that was like right right before the border into Colorado. I think it was Nickerson, Kansas. It was oh, like man. a gastro pub, and it was like this amazing burger and this and these like these. There was a brewery, and so they had like I remember it was like two in the afternoon. I had like three beers, and then I tried to get back on my bike, and I was like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. Like I gotta find a campsite. This is not working. It was really good. So I've spent a lot of time in Kansas. I can't imagine that there is a gastro pub in Nickerson, Kansas. Yeah, there there was. It was right before we hit the Colorado sign. 
uh, the pass on the border. And it was like in the middle of nowhere. But it was a really Were you on 50? Don't, don't know. It wouldn't have been an interstate because no, all no, the no. roads are quite. Yeah. So oh. the next town was Sheridan Lake in Kiowa okay. County. Yeah, uh, so a little bit south. Yeah, it was really far south. Yeah, yeah. All right. We better spend some time talking about Fixer, your late adventure, I guess. So maybe uh, I'm actually familiar with it because I've, we have some clients that are in the remodeling space, but others may not know about it yet. So maybe give us a heads up on what Fixer.com is. So Fixer is an on-demand handy person service, similar in some ways to Grubhub in that you can go on, you can see exactly when people are available, schedule it, and have them come up to your come to your home. The big difference is that instead of working with, you know, in Grubhub was existing restaurants with Fixer, we actually employ the workers full-time. And so it's not just a contractor, like mm. sort of matching service. We actually take responsibility for the quality of the work and we train people from scratch. And the whole idea behind it is we're trying to reboot an entry path into the trades and a gender inclusive and create a great consumer experience in the home because we have a lot of control and a lot of influence over the actual experience in the home. It's in Denver, Chicago, Seattle, Phoenix, and Dallas. Yeah, that that was my next question. The expansion, you know, will be much slower, won't it? Because the fact that you're actually building both sides of it now. It's like you're going in every town and building a restaurant. Yeah, I kind of feel like saying, hold my beer, watch this. <laughs> it's not going to be slower. It'll be much faster. And part of that is because our the first couple of fixers that we hire in a market are experienced people because they become the mentors for the trainees who join you know, as the fourth and fifth and sixth employee in the market. And so we'll be opening up the hiring platform across about a hundred cities over the next two years. So it should be actually quite a bit faster at the expansion. And that, that's the plan anyway. And it's great because, you know, the, it is like, I don't have to, I'm actually pretty handy, but I don't like doing it. And so it's really nice to like have somebody be able to come in and do the work. And then it feels really good that I know it's a really good job. It's high paying, it's oriented towards training new people and bring new people into the trades. And so it's a really satisfying experience in addition to it, it working. Yeah. That's really interesting because obviously, I mean, you're tapping into this. That's obviously an area that, I mean, you talk to remodeling contractors or anybody needing skilled labor and they can't find people right now. Yeah, uh, that's, so, uh, that is the problem we set out to solve is, <laughs> is creating an entry path into the trades. You know, the handy person work is typically, you know, it's uh there's, it's very broad, so you have to be able to do a little plumbing, a little electrical, a little yeah. carpentry. We, you know, you develop what we call core skills, but but the specialist jobs like electricians and plumbers and things like that, they need a broad base to, to be able to hire from, to even be able to train somebody to be an electrician. You have to, yeah. they have to have a certain yeah. set of core skills before you can even start there. And so, I mean, my hope is that this really ends up being a very large business that creates, that starts to rebalance. Um, the supply of skilled tradespeople relative to the demand because it's all out of whack right now. There just aren't enough people in the trade. Yeah, which yeah, means they should be paid more. By the way, they, they, well, yeah, uh, obviously so, they yeah. are being paid more. I think now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it is, yeah, that is true. It, the the yeah. rates are certainly going up for tradespeople. Yeah, it's funny as I listen to you talk about that. I've lived in mostly older homes my home ownership life, and we'd have people come in and work on something, and they'd pull a wall off and go, "I don't even know what I'm looking at." You know, it's like knob and tube wiring or you know, yeah. lead plumbing pipes. <laughs> yeah, that's so you definitely need that breadth of experience, don't you? Yeah, we tend to do work in older homes as yeah. well. I mean, most of the homes in Chicago are about 100 years old. Sure. So not like really old homes like they'd be in Boston, but because the city bound burned down at the turn of the century, the previous right. century. And so but yeah, I mean, it is true that you just have to see a lot before you can know how to have the confidence that you can walk into any home and, and do the work. 
Talking with Mike Evans, the founder of Fixer.com, author of Hangry, his startup journey to founding Grubhub. So, Mike, you want to tell people where they can certainly find the book, but also if you want to invite people to connect with you somehow. Sure. The book, the easiest place to buy the book is on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's available for pre as of November 1st, and I'm not sure when exactly this podcast will publish. It'll be available for order in addition to pre-order. And then if you want to connect with me, you can go on my website at MikeEvans.com. Awesome. Well, really appreciate you stopping by the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast, and hopefully we'll uh, run into you one of these days soon out there on the road, either on a bike or in a car, although I must admit I spend most of my time riding over rocks these days. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, and one final thing before you go. You know how I talk about marketing strategy, strategy before tactics. Well, sometimes it can be hard to understand where you stand in that, what needs to be done with regard to creating a marketing strategy. So we created a free tool for you. It's called the Marketing Strategy Assessment. You can find it at marketingassessment.co, not .com, .co. Check out our free marketing assessment and learn where you are with your strategy today. That's just marketingassessment.co. I'd love to chat with you about the results that you get.